2: Welcome back to TV's Top Five, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, what's shaking? How you doing?
3: One foot in front of the other, Leslie. One foot in front of the other.
2: Yeah, it feels uh, we're going to try and, and and get back to our uh, traditional format after last week's interview with Warren Light. And if you missed it, lots of good stuff in there, at least in my opinion about how Law & Order is planning to handle the George Floyd slaying and what the show's value is in this time when uh, amid calls for police reform.
3: And we are not saying that we're getting back to normal because, let's be honest, nothing is getting back to normal anytime soon, but we're going to treat it this week as if there are five headlines we want to talk about.
2: Yes. And with that said, let's dive into this week's headlines. Up first, Dakota Johnson is going to star in a comedy series called Rodeo Queens, which is in development at Amazon. Elsewhere at the retail giant and streamer, the company has revived former pop series Flack for another season. Over at Stars, the premium cable network has renewed crime drama Hightown starring Monica Raymond for a second season.
3: NBC is cleaning house and has canceled rookie comedy Perfect Harmony and its Lincoln Rhyme reboot, which I like that you just refer to as its Lincoln Rhyme reboot and not LG colon Hunt for the Bone Collector colon Lincoln Rhyme or whatever dumbass thing NBC decided to call it. NBC, you might as well have not put that show on for all you did to it. Yeah, that was a lot of money. But we don't want to dwell too much on the negative because there's definitely positive news coming out of NBC. NBC has given a second season renewal to Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, to which I say huzzah.
2: Over at Hulu, which has its New Front's presentation later this month, the streamer is also cleaning house and has canceled period drama Harlots after three seasons and first year drama Reprisal. Additionally, the Disney-backed streamer has picked up The Other Typist, a limited series starring and exec produced by Kira Knightley.
3: Over at TBS, the Warner Media-owned Basic Cable Network has picked up Celebrity Show Off hosted by Mayim Bialik and from the producers of The Masked Singer, and fellow competition series Tournament of Laps, hosted by Jason Sudeikis.
2: And this just in, HBO Max has renewed comedy Love Life for a second season. Over in executive moves, former HBO programming president Michael Lombardo has officially joined Entertainment One as global TV president and will develop programming based on parent company Hasbro's intellectual property. Elsewhere, friend of the five Brad Schwartz has departed his role as pop TV president and has been tapped to serve as chief content officer of Audible, where he will expand the company's premium storytelling.
3: To hear more from Brad, check out episode 34 from last August, where Brad joined us to discuss Pop's hot streak with Schitt's Creek and One Day at a Time before Viacom CBS crushed the network.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's telling to see how quickly that network went from a high priority in Viacom spending millions of dollars to acquire the half of it that it didn't already own and bulking it up with a, lots of originals under Brad including One Day at a Time and obviously, you know, using Schitt's Creek as a launch pad to kind of help reinvigorate that network. And now there's absolutely no one left there. There's no programming. We still don't know the future of One Day Day at a Time, which has, I think, six of its 13 episodes already shot. The animated special is coming up. And then we don't know.
3: (sighs) Very weird. Anyway, wrapping up headlines, the Peabody winners have been announced on the scripted TV side. The winners are Chernobyl, David Makes Man, Dickinson, Fleabag, Rami, Succession, Unbelievable, Watchmen, and When They See Us, plus, for reasons that make no particular sense to me, the third season of Stranger Things? I don't know. Anyway, though, we do not have a full list of uh, which episodes you can listen to various showrunners from various shows, but we talked to a bunch of those people, actually.
2: Yes, with the showrunner D. Harris Lawrence from David Makes Man. Obviously, Rami was in our big special year end episode last year. We have had Damon Lindelof on for Watchmen. Yeah, it's it's a nice little track record there, Dan.
3: Indeed. So with that, let's get to this week's top five. Number one.
2: Leading off, last week we broke format for what we hope was an insightful discussion about Hollywood portrays police. This week we're going to lead off with a a look at how Hollywood is responding to calls for police reform. Paramount Network this week officially canceled COPS. The CBS owned Basic Cable Network had been slated to launch its 33rd season on June 15th and now has no immediate plans to bring the former Fox series back. Meanwhile, the conglomerate's free streaming service Pluto TV continues to have its own dedicated channel to the syndicated series, at least for now. Then there's A&E. Last night, A&E canceled Ratings Juggernaut Live PD a month after the Basic Cable Network handed out a whopping 160-episode renewal for the series, which had been among the few programs able to remain in production amid the current pandemic. Then at HBO Max, the streamer has has removed Civil War epic Gone with the Wind from its platform, at least temporarily, and noted that when it does return, it will do so with a, quote, discussion of its historical context- Wrapping things up, Warner Brothers has fired actor an actor named Hartley Sawyer from The Flash after a number of racist, misogynistic and homophobic tweets from before he joined the CW drama surfaced. Dan, it's been a week.
3: It has indeed been a week, and that's without even getting into the sort of non-TV ripples in the pop culture world. Things like Lady Antebellum deciding to change their name to Lady A. Or and this is one that actually genuinely surprises me, and I'm curious to see how it will play out. NASCAR banning the Confederate flag from all NASCAR related events, which is a little bit like banning NASCAR fans from all NASCAR related events. So I will be very curious to see how that plays out.
2: Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Plus, you have Little Britain, which was pulled from Netflix, which, you know, that show featured a a number of episodes with blackface. So Uh,
3: and the thing with so many of these Stories is how ridiculous it is that it took this particular horrible moment in history to push people's hands on them when any one of them could have been canceled pulled, moved beyond on several other horrible moments in history, or perhaps if anyone had stopped to have even an iota of reflection.
2: And I even think cops was maybe pulled a few years ago amid a similar, I mean, although not as a global scale of a protest following some police brutality. Cops has
3: been on long enough that there have been enough different conversations about police brutality, and not just that, but conversations which genuinely and generally bring in the horrible and horribly detrimental way that Cops as a TV series has always portrayed the relationship between the police and the community they're supposed to be policing. Um, The the fact that that show just keeps popping up leads me to believe that this cancellation isn't going to be the last for it either. They're just going to wait for the next time that they can opportunistically make money off of the police running down unnamed people of color and tackling them.
2: Yeah. And the A&E statement about live PD seemingly left the, the door open a little bit for that to possibly return maybe in a different format. We don't know yet, but it still has other spinoffs that are, that are in the work, including one looking at first responders and the and medical stuff, too. I think it's like live MD. Well, or it's what like they've that. been
3: doing in the past couple months, given the change in our climate. And, you know, Honestly, cops getting canceled doesn't make much difference to anybody. It's it's a library title at this point. It's filler programming. But if you look at the A&E schedule and see how much live PD means to that network, that actually is a statement they're making. And the longer that they go without putting it back on in some sort of rebooted form shows the degree of seriousness that they actually feel towards it.
2: (laughs) It is a mega hit. Make no mistake. That is one of Cable's biggest performing shows.
3: Yeah, that's that's not just them knocking out a supporting player saying, yeah, whatever, we'll we'll be noble and whatever. This is them removing their most successful franchise and the spine of their programming at this particular moment. So the longer they actually remain determined, you know, we'll we'll see how much they mean. I'm I remain vaguely head scratchingly baffled by the the Uh, the Gone with the Wind thing, and even more so by the reaction from, quote unquote, the world at large. Uh, Gone with the Wind did not magically become racist yesterday. And this is not the first time that this movie has been put out in some form or another. Every single time the movie has been put out in a different form, they've had to deal with the fact that it is racially backward on nearly every level and that it is, as Lady Antebellum could tell you, a glorification to some degree of a version of the Antebellum South. So the fact that HBO Max had this title and didn't know that they wanted to stick a title card in front of it from the very moment they put it online is baffling to me. And also, it's not like there aren't Movies, documentaries, featurettes where people talk about what's wonky about this movie and any one of them could have been put on the exact same page as the Gone with the Wind movie on HBO Max from the very beginning and said, we need you to keep in mind, this is not something we endorse. This is not something anyone has endorsed. And seriously, get some context, learn about it. Yeah. And then you can watch and be like, "Ooh, it's a pretty movie because it is. It's it's a it's a stunningly made movie. There's you cannot argue with that. It is also a racist movie. And so the conservatives who have decided to come out of the woodwork in the past week as huge fans of Hollywood entertainment and as dynamic supporters of Hattie McDaniel's legacy, those people can all go straight to hell. I mean, honestly, anyone who wants to anyone who wants to claim that the true victim of of this has been Hattie McDaniel's legacy is (laughs) that those people just need to shut up and get off the Internet, which, to be frank, is a mantra that probably, honestly, almost all of us should (laughs) should have. So, yeah, I could go on on this one forever, uh, honestly. But the other thing is it's going to be back. It'll probably be back by next week, because if the steps that they needed to take are as obvious as really they are and were, uh, they should be able to do that by Sunday. That's just me giving them an artificial deadline. Also, I don't know how to tell Warner Brothers this. They have a lot of movies in that library on HBO Max that also probably do not fully represent the, I don't know, the mission statement and virtues of Warner Media. So, you know, just, just give it a look and decide what else you want to stick a title card in front of, because I don't want to censor any of these things. But boy, context is a nice thing to give people.
2: And, you know, and speaking of context, you know, Warner Media and HBO Max is not alone in having to do stuff like this. You know, remember when Disney Plus launched late last year, which feels like 11 million years ago now. But they had to add labels of, of time of dated cultural depictions to a lot of their stuff. I mean, things like Dumbo and even Lady and the Tramp, which is one of my personal favorites. Like, you know, this is not. I mean, this is something that both companies should have thought about with some of these titles as they were reviewing them, you know, and loading them digitally to whatever magical servers. I don't I I don't pretend to understand technology, but this is something that should have been done in advance of the service launching, as you said.
3: Warner Animation had already done it in front of old and dated depictions in Warner Animation titles. So it's not even like they don't have the.
2: Yeah, like El- Elmer Fudd doesn't have a gun anymore on Looney Tunes, you know. In
3: the in the new versions. But yeah, I yeah. I think that yeah, I think it's I think it's ridiculous that they did not anticipate this and that they did not have a simple easy point of recourse uh because yeah, and I keep saying this, Disney should also be taking Song of the South out of the vault and it should be accompanied by a documentary, but anytime you don't have that movie available. What you're doing is pretending it is not a part of Walt Disney's legacy. And it is a part of Walt Disney's legacy. And guess what, kids? A lot of the stuff in Walt Disney's legacy is really crappy. And to pretend that those things don't exist is the sort of denial that the Disney Corporation has been making billions off of for decades. And that's ridiculous. And they can probably stop doing that, I think.
2: Yeah. And there's a, you know, a movement online to get Disneyland to to kind of rebrand Splash Mountain because and and maybe turn it into something from the Princess of the Frog or Moana. But yeah, I mean, that ride is not exactly PC anymore.
3: Uh, well, and it and I think the number of the sheer number of people who don't have any awareness that Splash Mountain has anything to do with Song of the South at all is uh is something else because Disney kind of separated the animated sequences from Song of the South long ago and repurposed them in enough different ways that there's this popular perception among young people that basically, you know, Br'er Rabbit and those animated sequences aren't their own thing, and they're not. If anyone cares, they should be totally listening to the entire Song of the South podcast from uh, Karina Longworth's uh, You Must Remember This podcast, which is just fantastic, and that actually, gives insight into Hattie McDaniel's career and legacy, unlike your friendly conservative pundits who are suddenly really, really worried about it.
2: Well, Dan, um, what do you say we go to the next topic?
3: (laughs) Otherwise, I'm just going to be ranting about Song of the South. And uh, (laughs)
2: I'm happy to let you do that, too. But I also know that we have a time limit on these episodes. We
3: do indeed. Number two.
2: Up second, it's time for a mailbag segment reminder that if you have questions that you'd like to hear Dan and I discuss on the podcast feel free to drop us an email at TV's top five that's the number five at thR com or hit us up on Twitter we're happy to field your questions up first friend of the five Alan Seppenwall emails how will other cop shows handle the current real world fight over the future of policing. Specifically, he's wondering if there's a way for a comedy like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which has acknowledged real-life flaws in policing, if there's a way that they can really truly tackle this subject and have any room left for jokes. Dan, this is definitely a question for you.
3: I think it's a question for both of us uh, because I don't know what the answer is. The, the popular tweet that was going around all of the weekend about Brooklyn Nine-Nine is can't they just come back in the new year and pretend that the show is about a bunch of people working at a post office? And I mean, I guess they could. It would be a different show entirely. So, you know, whatever. Possibly
2: lose its urgency from the episodes, too. I
3: don't know that I personally have ever thought that the quote unquote urgency or that the uh, depiction of actual policing has ever been the thing that I have really enjoyed most about Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I have never been the biggest of fans of their quote unquote issue episodes. I haven't thought those were the best things that show did. And to me, part of why I haven't liked those those episodes is because when you focus on something like Terry experiencing police profiling or almost anything that's serious, what you're doing is making a a very conscious effort to remind the viewers of what these people are and what they do and where the warts are that you don't see in the episodes that aren't like that. And so anytime you have a special, very special episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, it just makes me go, OK, well, yeah, maybe maybe this is all a little bit a fruit from the poison tree kind of situation where it's it's not great. So, yeah, maybe maybe they can go work at the post office because really, at the end of the day, my the thing I like most about that show is the actual actors and the characters to some degree. But I guess the characters could be just as likable and the actors would surely be just as likable if they worked at a police department or whatever. So, yeah, it's it's going to be Interesting. I don't I don't think the answer is as simple as make them work at the post office. But I don't know that the answer also is doing a very special, serious episode on police brutality or whatever, and then going back the next weekend and doing a heist episode. So it's it's an odd situation they're in.
2: Yeah. I mean, the other thing that we know is that, you know, Dan Gore, when I talked to him for the the recent series, a season finale, said that the next season they are they are already planning on addressing COVID-19 in those scripts. So maybe you'll see some of these characters at home. Personally, I would love to see more episodes about all of these families and how they're handling quarantine and, and the safer at home stuff, or if they're still having to work or if they've been hospitalized. I mean, the personal stories like the one, as you said, you know, the, these characters are, are people that that, you know, you you've learned to love and, and you know you obviously saw the big movement online to rescue the show after Fox canceled it a couple of years ago and the big outpouring of love that happened there. So that doesn't happen without characters that you that you love and root for. And as someone who is a fan of the show, not that you listen to this podcast to hear what TV I like, but to me, for me, I would like to see more of these characters at home and what that's like, especially Jake and Amy. They have a newborn, you know, so. Thank <sighs> But Th- that, that's my two cents. But says, then, but whatever then you're sort
3: of dealing with the problem of how do we justify the fact that in their off hours, these characters are spending as much time as they are together, because it's one thing that you get to go home with Jake and Amy and play with their little baby and whatever. But there has to be a reason why all of the other characters are also coming over to play with their baby every week. And True. that's yeah. more complicated than it.
2: Right. It's obviously not a long term solution. <laughs> so it, it's what This is why I am a reporter and not a TV writer. No, it's friends. and it's
3: and it's tough <laughs> and. and And Brooklyn does have it easier because Brooklyn can at least pretend that it exists in some sort of fantasy world in which we don't need to be asking these questions. It won't make the show look especially good, but some people will just be like, I come to the show to laugh. Whereas a Law & Order show, as Warren Light discussed with us last week, is always going to have to be a Law & Order show to some extent. And there's only so much it can do. And they keep adding new Law & Order shows, and therefore that's more and more episodes that have to walk on the exact same tightrope. And the more and more and more that you're walking on a tightrope, on one hand, maybe you actually get good at it and you don't fall off. Or on the other hand, you make a mistake and things get really ugly. So
2: yeah. And Warren also talked last week about the, the attempts that he has made in his career to bring in the show about who polices the police. And no one has been willing to make that show. And I think, obviously, I wouldn't be too surprised to see something like that surface. I don't know if it, if it, you know, the mastermind of Dick Wolf is maybe the right person to do that, but I wouldn't be surprised to see something like that in development, and or at least a number of them wind up be, being put in development. I mean, the interesting thing, and, I, and this is obviously taking us a little bit off topic, but out of crisis comes good art. Right, you know, I I look back at you know the Writers Guild strike, and obviously that's a far less urgent crisis as to what we're looking at now. But you look at things like Doctor Horrible Sing Along Blog, which came out of that from you know from Joss Whedon, and I wouldn't be surprised to see a number of pieces of art that address policing and that police reform come out of this. Bonnie Hammer, who is uh, the the chairman of Universal Television Studios, she wrote a great guest column for THR this week that kind of calls to order like what, you know, this was obviously related to COVID, but I think it applies in this conversation too, is we have an op, Hollywood has an opportunity now to tell important stories that will last, that will leave a legacy much in the kind of the same way that Battlestar Galactica did and address themes that came out of September 11th. I think this is the opportunity and I'm very eager to see what stories come out of this, this space right now.
3: That sounds like a transition into one of our other listener questions. And you've already given an answer, but I'm still going to read the question anyway. Listener Phil in Cleveland emailed in the past two weeks, I became hooked on Korean baseball on ESPN, uh, though it's played early in the morning hours. What out of the box ideas do you think TV has brought us that really hit the mark this year due to the current COVID crisis?
2: my response here is very inside baseball. I'm particularly interested in seeing what happens with the upfront market, specifically the advertising community. And, you know, for so long, you know, television has been tied to the September to May television season. And a lot of that is based on when the school year started, when the new cars were were released for the following year. But I think one of the call, you know, there was an, an advertising agency um, this week that called for networks to shift to a calendar year schedule rather than September to May. And I'm fascinated by that because it, it seems like, you know, every broadcast network is trying to be in year round programming anyway, and nobody wants to air repeats anymore because obviously they don't rate and, and the first run episodes barely rate as is. You know, so I'm that's that's what I'm really curious to see. But Dan, what about you? (laughs) Uh, uh, Like I said, this is boring as shit. uh, So (laughs) and and probably not very interesting to to the crux of our our listeners here. But I can give it that's what I mean, I
3: can give a similar inside baseball answer that I would love to think that this is going to cause broadcast networks to look at pilot season in general and realize how wildly expensive and. I don't want to say entirely superfluous, but just what a horrible, profligate mess that is as a thing that they continue to do. Uh, You
2: don't need 60 pilots. I mean, I think we're going to see a a drastic cut down. And I think 2021 is going to be different already because you've got so many pilots from this season that were are probably going to wind up being rolled into next year. So you're looking at a, a total volume will probably be far less. I don't think the networks will buy as many scripts. And I think that, you know, with the financial crisis that, that everyone is, finds themselves in right now, that I think will be a, a big cost savings place for these networks and studios. But yeah, I think, you know, you don't, you know, you streamers have have proven you don't necessarily need to go a a traditional pilot and then have a hundred, you know, different execs review it and give notes on it and then make tweaks and then pick it up to series. But I do think there is value in the system, especially on broadcast because sometimes it takes showrunners, you know, these episodes are produced on, you know, sometimes in eight to 10 days, probably longer when new safeguards are put in place. But I think there is something to be said for the network notes process, but I do think Sometimes these these shows find themselves later, you know, down the line, three, four, five episodes in. And I think there is value to producing the pilot and knowing what that show is in advance. But I don't think that you need to order 70 pilots to know which shows you're going to make next season and which eight to 10 or, you know, if it's even that many this year. God, it's like most networks have two or three uh, new series. so. Yeah, I don't think you're going to see the days of 60, up, you know, pilots, which is still down. Like, I remember in 2015, it was like over 100 pilots in the, in the works for the big five uh, broadcast networks. But yeah, that's I, I agree with you. Dan. I think
3: Phil has been was looking, though, for more fun things. Like, for example, yeah, I haven't I haven't enjoyed all of them, but I've enjoyed a lot of the kind of reunion get together kind of things that people have been doing online. And every single time I see one and I've, I've mostly I haven't watched the full thing of any of them because if I'm being honest, I don't need to see people getting back together all that much. But every time I watch it, the only thing I can think is how much money uh, Warner Brothers signed on to get a friend's reunion from. And if they had just waited a few months, they could have gotten all the friends to come and do it for charity. And it would have been like, "Ooh, that's nice. So instead, they're going to have to find a way to actually get money out of this reunion when they can actually put them in the same room together. And I don't know how they can get value out of it. Like, like, what's the solution? Is the solution to have to make sure that they're constantly touching each other on the shoulder or something, just because otherwise they might as well be on Zoom from their respective mansions. So it's just... <laughs>
2: you, you know, Dan, funny you bring that up because I just did um, an interview with Sarah Aubrey, who runs Originals for HBO Max, and I asked her where the value, if the if the Friends reunion still had value, especially considering the, the massive price tag each of the stars is getting for this thing. And she said, right now the plans are... Hopefully shoot it in August. Who knows if that's what that, you know, when that timing is, if that's actually going to work. But in a larger sense, they want everyone on that original stage on or in the proximity to that couch. (laughs) So, you know, ideally, and they want to do it still in front of a live studio audience. So maybe the studio audience isn't as big. Maybe that, you know, the cast gets, you know, all the cast members get tested. Maybe there's quarantine. I don't know. There's a lot of questions, but she said the value is, is, is having this group all together in the same room on the, that historic stage and ideally you know they in a perfect world this would have been available for launch right and you know she downplayed that this was their version of the mandalorian right that must-see tv pun intended thing that you need to have on day one and they still have friends and that's fine but she said the value is still in having a reunion with the original cast on that famous stage and people will tune in because people love the show. And I, I don't think she's wrong. But what, but is it still worth that crazy money that they're paying them? I don't
3: know. I honestly do think she's wrong. I think the value was a opening day needle pusher. I think that's right. what its value was. Its value was that you had a show where you could guarantee that that every single website on the Internet, including us, would do a 15 things we learned from the Friends reunion story or something to that effect. And every single one would mention HBO Max is now available for subscribers. You can get it, blah, blah, blah. And guess what? No one did that with the uh, first three episodes of Love Life. No one did that with the first few episodes of Elmo's talk show. So what they did not have when they launched was that one piece of content that everybody had to give them free advertising for. And that's what it was there for. So now they have to find something else that it's there for. And yes, having them all on a stage together is cute and fine and it's going to be great. But I also find it charming to to see the stars of various different shows you know, in their civilian clothes, maybe without makeup, sitting in their living rooms and seeing what their lives actually look like to me. I mean, that looks like a much more unscripted and honest and candid thing than an attempting to fit those gigantic egos onto one tiny couch and hoping that what they do doesn't appear to be canned.
2: That's a fair point. And, and I will wrap this question with this. I am a massive Friends fan, as you know, and Right now, I barely want to leave the house, but when they shoot this thing, I am going to bend over backwards to make sure that I'm on set for that. And I am afraid of people right now. I have a, a my face mask looks like Bane. Um, so yeah, that, that's where my head's at. Um, moving on, listener Amanda emails... Dan, what is going on with the good fight? Five series regulars have exited in just four seasons. And our our lovely uh, listener does make the, the designated survivor showrunner comparison here in terms of volume. But from a critical perspective, Dan, how do you think the show has handled these departures thus far?
3: Man, it's been weeks since we've mentioned designated survivor in any capacity at all. That's I feel like we've been letting our listeners down and and I apologize profusely. I know
2: what I'm now I'm trying to remember. It was five showrunners, three seasons, two networks, two studios, something like that. Yeah. (sighs) Cue the cue. The key for Sutherland.
3: Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. it. (laughs) The answer to Amanda's question is it it is a baffling thing. The number of actors who have left or are leaving the show, Uh, Cush Jumbo most recently, is the most recent departing actor. And the funny thing about the show is that they're are so many moving pieces and so much is happening like that is one of the most frantic and busy shows on television. And The Good Wife was also very similar. You know, so many main characters and, you know, sometimes they'd be in the same room together. But you could have two uh, two actors on that show who refused to be in the same room together for, say, hypothetically, three or four years. And it caused no problems whatsoever for the show other than, you know, destroying one of the show's key relationships. But that's a different conversation. Uh, so I don't think they've done a good job of giving us closure on most of the characters that have departed but I think they've done a very good job of basically of sleight of hand of of moving around the pieces so that you don't necessarily cause yourself to go wait wasn't agreed from uh, Game of Thrones a regular on this show at some point do I miss that character particularly uh, or any of the other people who have left so I I think they've done a very good job of keeping the show moving at a pace where as long as you have Christine Baranski being awesome and you can surround her by great guest stars and an occasional musical number and something that they ripped from the headlines. I mostly don't care and it doesn't bother me except for when I step back and go, huh, that's a lot of cast members who have left that show in a very short period of time. And it's not like it's the kind of show that's built to have constantly rotating casts. So that's not like
2: (laughs) Dynasty on the CW, which I've lost track of how many people have come and gone and been recast. On I was gonna say
3: like at three of them in the same character. So it's it's not the kind of show where that is actually a thing that the show can do as a joke, though, probably at this point it It's the kind of thing that the Kings who enjoy a good meta wink and nudge kind of reference should probably start referencing at every turn that uh, that anyone in any conference room at any time could cease to be on the show by the next episode. It's it's peculiar because it's such a very good show and it's such a very smart show. And it's odd to see a show that you think of as being so consistently well run as having some of these issues. And The Good Wife did have some turnover as well and did have some actors who didn't talk to each other. So it, it might just be the price of doing business the way they do business. And as long as the shows are good, we don't care. That's my answer, I think.
2: Yes. That wraps up the mailbag segment. Reminder, if you have questions you'd like to hear us address on the show, please email us at TV's top five. That's number five at THR.com.
3: Well, we set aside a segment in the hopes that a series of requirements for reopening production were going to be officially announced by Los Angeles and Los Angeles County on Thursday afternoon. Unfortunately, it is now nearing 6 p.m. and that has yet to happen. And so instead, somewhat as a filler segment, here's where we currently stand.
2: Yeah, things are clear to begin production in Los Angeles um, on June 12th. This is today, Friday. Um, But yeah, that's... um we don't know how. Yeah. So basically go for it is what the county's saying, but we don't know how to go for it. So basically all of the guilds are kind of having at it right now. And each one, you know, has the different things that they're sending their members and they've all kind of team together for one giant document that's called a white paper that's outlining a lot of potential things that they would like to see and do. Um, The WGA, however, was not privy to those discussions. So that's a whole other, you know, ball of wax here. So basically, you know, LA County has the go ahead to resume production, but not the rules for which to really get there. So yeah, it's it's a mess. And meanwhile the COVID cases are, are climbing in LA County. And I think uh, Thursday had its highest number of cases reported since the pandemic began. So yeah, I don't know. And Orange County thinks that they don't have to wear masks. So there's that too.
3: Ah, uh, but they'll still be recommended, just like masks are recommended in Las Vegas. But if you saw footage from the reopening of the casinos, the only people wearing the masks are the dealers at the uh, casino.
2: Yeah, I so, saw I saw a footage of a woman passed out waiting for an elevator. So, yeah, definitely go, go, uh, go to Vegas by all means right now. Well, joining us this week to talk about some of the ways back. And one of the things that is happening right now in terms of the scripts that are being written is THR's executive editor, television, Lacey Rose. Thank you for joining us, Lacey. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with with one of the biggest things is, you know, look, obviously production isn't up and running yet, but one thing that has been going remotely is the writers' rooms. And, you know, the first story that we worked on together was if these shows were going to tackle COVID, and now the next piece of this is how are shows actually, how are writers preparing to, to go back to work and work around some of these scenes in the COVID era, whether or not they tackle the pandemic head on.
4: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and there are plenty of writers who are sort of waiting, ho- holding a beat until they actually have a sense of, of what the world will look like when they're coming back. But there are plenty of others who are, you know, sitting there and writing scenes and realizing, well, wait a second, we can't film these scenes. So, so let's rethink it. And, and that's everything from crowd scenes to to sex scenes um, to fight scenes. And sort of everything in between.
3: Now, my favorite part of your article was the part about the suggestion that line producers might be put in the writer's room and particularly Marta Kaufman's reaction to that. Talk a little bit about what that would mean and why that's such a crazy thing for them to be suggesting.
4: Just to be clear, it's for precisely the reason Marta said, like, it's never going to happen because no showrunner is going to let that happen. But I think there were studio executives who were sort of throwing out the idea idea of like oh wait a second does it make sense to have a line producer in there to say oh we can't do that and and this isn't going to make sense and this isn't going to be feasible and if you're a writer you're sitting there and saying first off like I think I (laughs) am if I can run a show I can figure out what's feasible and oftentimes you have to go through all sorts of permutations of a storyline to land on ultimately one that you can shoot and to sort of halt the uh, creativity process that early on by someone who's saying this isn't feasible is
3: just not going to go well. No, it's a it's a it's a comical idea of having the writers in the room and then having the line producer sitting off to the side, just kind of shaking their head every idea they have. Right. Correct.
4: (laughs) Yeah. But at the same time, I think that, you know, well run shows, the showrunner and the line producer typically do have a good relationship and they are in constant communication uh, about you know, what is feasible, even in the best of times, even when we're not in the middle of a pandemic. But yes, in the room, no way. Not going to happen.
2: Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting was John Wells, who I absolutely adore and he is always so insightful. But he made, made the comment that he was, you know, and look, he, he was talking specifically about Shameless and the final season and how he was going to address COVID and some of these things. But he didn't want to write in a lot of these things because he was trying he was saying something like, he didn't want to have to rewrite these scenes four or five, six times as things changed. How much of that is going to be cumbersome when it comes to, sh- to actually shooting these things, especially when you have
4: even the eventual safeguards that are put in place? Well, I, I Look, I, I think the timelines are, are very different for cable and streaming shows versus network shows. I mean, I, I think you've got a lot of network uh, showrunners who are on a a different timeline and you know they are looking at sort of getting back up and into production far faster than these streaming and, and cable shows and and for that reason they have to think about all of these things in a different way and they don't have the luxury to sort of wait and see and and in some cases people are gonna wait and wait for a vaccine you know, if you're a network show you don't have that luxury yeah because you've
2: got these episodes that need to get filmed in maybe eight and ten days and now, well, forget you know, that. You have to
4: actually get back up on the air because you have a schedule right. that, that's based on when advertisers have, you know, money put into into a, uh,
3: you know, a block of time. Now, all of these sort of half jesting or maybe two thirds jesting comments about using CG, for example, to augment not just sexual intimacy, but any sort of actual human contact between people. Is that a thing that people are mentioning as the kind of extreme and ridiculous extent that people would have to go to to do these things, but no one actually thinks it's plausible, or is there someone actually who thinks this is a thing that could help cause solve problem
4: no i think I think that a lot of people are, are are absolutely talking about the fact that you know for you know a crowd scene, if you have uh you know a show in which you want to be able to show any kind of scale, that's the way you're going to have to do it right now. You're not going to... I mean, you probably, you know, you can avoid writing the big crowd scene, you avoid writing it. But there are plenty of of, of examples where you need it even if it's a flash to it for a second and and that is where you would use cgi i think there was an executive who who mentioned you know if if a pre uh covid storyline is a birthday party in the backyard with a bunch of children and their parents the sort of post covid or or covid storyline is you know you have two or three characters in the kitchen talking about the party and if there's a reference to it you can quickly you know flash to that party which is cgi uh, and I think you'll see that. I mean, that is that is how you will see it. Now, there's only. I mean, I think it was Sarah Gramble who who talked about this idea that you know <laughs> we haven't figured out how to CGI a kiss yet, uh, and and for that reason, she's sort of sitting there like, well, how the heck am I going to do this? And I think you have a lot of people who are are very worried about the how. And by the way, there, there's also the piece of talent has to be willing, and I think you're going to run into a lot of cases where maybe it's older talent, maybe it's you know, it's it's talent who who lives with with somebody who, you know, is immunocompromised or 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 has, you know, has a parent living with them who just or or for whatever reason, they don't feel comfortable. And in that case, th- there's not a whole lot of showrunner or a, a network executive can do.
3: do. Do you get any sense that anybody feels like we're getting actually closer to doing this or that everyone's just coming up with new lists of problems and concerns? And that's where we are.
4: You know, I, I think there are plenty of, um, you know, I, I think right now you're still seeing sort of people experimenting and trying to figure out how to do these sort of quarantine era stuff in terms of like high level shows. No, I, I don't think we're there yet. I, I think there's I, I don't feel, feel like anyone feels like there is a safe way to do this. And until, you know, someone, you know, a showrunner feels that their crew and their cast is going to be safe, I mean, they're just not going to do it
2: yeah you know we've seen very few sh- new shows um, picked up for whatever the hell the next season's going to look like. But one piece of your story that I thought was interesting is um, you mentioned some networks may looking at their libraries to see if there are other programs to reboot that they that could be a little bit easier to shoot in this landscape. Is that something that that you think we'll see sooner
4: rather than later? Yeah, I think you've heard a lot of people sort of reference shows like in Treatment, which was uh, on some level, you know, a lot of levels sort of ahead of its time, but but you think about a show like that. You could do that now. That is a show you could easily make. So I, so I've heard about, you know, versions of that. Uh, people pitching new shows that are like that, but also looking at what if you have projects like that in your arsenal that that makes sense, uh, reviving in this moment.
2: Yeah, I think I, I go back and think about web therapy and how ahead of its time that thing was. So, well. Thank you so much for joining us, Lacey. It's definitely a story we will all continue to monitor and I'm sure talk multiple times about in the months ahead. No
4: doubt. Thank you, guys.
0: Number four.
2: Up next is our showrunner spotlight segment. Joining us this week are Isaac Aptiker and Elizabeth Berger, the co-showrunners alongside Dan Fogelman on This Is Us, and the screenwriters behind the feature film Love, Simon. The writing duo previously worked on such shows as Grandfathered, The Neighbors, and About a Boy, and they join us today to discuss Hulu's Love, Victor, the TV series follow-up to Love, Simon. Thanks for joining us, Isaac and Elizabeth. Of course. We're thrilled to be here. Thank you. You know, so starting off, you know, I'm a huge fan of the Love, Simon movie, and congratulations for the success on that. But I'm curious, at what point did you guys determine that there was more to the story of Love, Simon, specifically for television?
5: The response to the film was, was truly incredible, and it was so amazing to hear from so many uh so many of our audience members, particularly, you know, kids who use the experience to either talk about their sexuality with their parents or help them come out. The one kind of common refrain that we did hear about the movie was that Simon's story was so singular and so sort of charmed in that he had these incredibly loving liberal parents. He had this group of friends who he had known since childhood who were there for him and that not everybody's story is that easy uh, and that sort of fairy tale ish. Um and that was really the goal of the movie that was what Greg and and all of us wanted to it to be but we realized that given its success we had an opportunity to perhaps use the title and use the the goodwill to tell a very different version of a coming out story.
3: Well I'm interested in the idea of the fairy tale aspect of the movie and and sort of what Greg wanted the first time around and then what your effort was to kind of make it messy and to make it less fairy tale the second time around.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think Greg and us, we all just wanted to give gay teenagers the sort of rom-com that you get your popcorn and you go on a date and you sit down with your friends and you just have fun that straight kids have had access now for decades and decades and I think that was really the goal. We d- we we just wanted to give them that kind of movie, which felt like it had been so sorely lacking. And, you know, moving into Love, Victor, we, we still wanted to tell a story that was aspirational and that ultimately made people feel good when they were finished watching it. But we did sort of, like Isaac said, just want to also broaden the representation that we were showing. And we are well aware that Love, Simon, you know, was not not the messiest of stories. And it felt like being on TV, we had the room now to tell a more complex story while not sort of losing, hopefully, the hopeful tone of the film.
2: You know, um, the sequel to the book that you guys based Love, Simon, on does provide a good blueprint for kind of how to approach a female version of this coming of age, coming out story. When I first reported that the show was in development, what I had originally heard was that you guys were going to take on book two. Um, Why did you guys decide to go in a different direction?
5: Sure. That was actually, I'm not quite sure. That was sort of a, a, press announcement that wasn't that didn't come from us. It was a rumor that was never the plan from the get go. The plan was always to make this uh, something of its own, a sequel set in the same world about about this new character, Victor. Um, I think I mean, certainly I think lesbian representation and having female characters is also hugely important. That was just never what this show was setting out to do.
3: Well, okay. so have you given consideration to what the female centric version of this story in this universe would be as opposed to the sequel to the book?
1: Not really. I mean, I think we we really wanted to sort of process the response we told we, we received from the, from the film and sort of make another version of a gay coming out story about a young high school boy. That was sort of always just the way we approached this. We also, from the very beginning, loved the idea in terms of sort of making the world feel cohesive from show um, from film to show. We loved the idea that Simon was going to sort of play a mentor to our young protagonist. And that really felt like that meant that our protagonist, it made most sense to us for it to be another young guy navigating, sort of coming out. So since I think that was always one of the things that really appealed to us in terms of, oh, we want to continue the story, but have it focus it on someone else, It we sort of always always imagined it with with
3: Victor as our protagonist. Following up on that, how did you guys decide how much or how little you needed Simon to actually be a presence here? And and what was Nick Robinson's availability? And was it as much as you would have wanted all things being equal?
5: Sure. That was something we sort of cracked very early when we were first sort of asking ourselves, is there a show here? Is this worth doing? We came up with the notion that what if this new character in the same world found out about Simon, the legend of Simon and started reaching out to him. And then in a way that was reminiscent of the love letters in the movie, they formed an an email correspondence, but it was about mentorship and sort of this older guardian angel character in Simon. Um, So we went to Nick right away because it was it wasn't going to be anything if he didn't want to to lend his his talents and he was really excited about it but as we talked more about it we realized we told simon's story he's sort of off and happy in college with his boyfriend and watching people be happy and in love doesn't make for particularly compelling television so that he should sort of fade into the background and really make this about this new uh class of kids and so we were it was sort of the the exact right amount of uh of nick that we all set out to to have
2: as you said, you know, the movie is very, you know, self-contained, right? You know, we know what what is happening with Simon and his boyfriend and, and, and in that world. And, you know, without spoiling too much here, the series kind of does set itself up for additional seasons. Um, did you guys have any consideration to doing this as a standalone as well as maybe making the franchise almost an anthology? Oh,
1: interesting. Uh, yeah, no, I hope, I, I think what always sort of appealed to us about doing it as a show is that we really could tell every chapter of this journey in a way that we didn't get to do in, you know, the two hours of screen time that we had for the film. So we just really loved the idea of being able to take our time. Obviously, Victor's journey, he starts from a place where he's much less sure about his sexuality than Simon was. Simon begins the movie by saying to uh, to Blue, I'm just, like you. And in this case, Victor's never even been around other gay people. So he doesn't even clearly have a reference for who he is and what he feels. He thinks he knows, but he's still figuring it out. So I think always the notion was we can tell this story really slowly and and sort of endeavor to tell every chapter of it in a way that, that we didn't that we didn't get to tell with Simon and we love the idea of sort of watching that with one kid through through the years and not making it seem like it has a beginning and an end point as a journey.
3: And, and Victor's such a a contrast of a character to Simon. Obviously, Simon was was white. He was upper class. As you were kind of going through the checklist of contrasts you wanted to make between these two characters, how did you decide the different angles of Victor's personality and background that you wanted to make sure you emphasized?
5: Uh, it really came from our writers. I mean, we're we're we think it's so so important that when you're telling a story like this, to make it specific, to make it authentic, and. For Elizabeth and I Victor's background Is not particularly similar To either of our backgrounds So that work really started We brought together A writer's room Before we even wrote The pilot actually Which is unusual And we made sure To make sure That those writers Really could speak To Victor's story In a personal way That we could not So that meant A lot of LGBTQ Plus a lot of Latinx writers And then we really Like the first couple Weeks of the room Were just sort of like Therapy and sharing About everyone's own High school experience Coming out There was a lot of stories. About grandparents, uh, which is w- led to an episode for us, and then on top of that, because you can't find writers who are able to work and, and currently in high school, we brought in a bunch of uh, of high schoolers from different gay straight alliances, you know, within L.A., Orange County, Altadena, and a, like just kind of grilled them about what it's like to be in the closet or out in high school nowadays, and really use those stories to try to capture something that hopefully will feel authentic to kids today.
3: When you sat down with those kids, what percentage of them had seen Love, Simon? And did they come with gripes? You know, were they (laughs) were they were they budding little movie critics? (laughs)
1: Um, That's very funny. Most of them had seen it, I would say. And most of them were, all of them were very lovely about it. Definitely. We had a few like savvy high school students that I think thought it was a little too tame for their taste and that it was just kind of like this sweet little story, but they appreciated it. Um, But yeah, that was, that was probably the toughest criticism that we got were just from kids that felt way cooler than us and, and could have gone a little edgier.
2: You know, um, speaking of, of edgier here, you know, this show was originally developed for Disney Plus and moved in February after it was, I think it was almost done at that point to Hulu over what sources said at the time were more adult themes, including alcohol use and marital issues among the uh, victor's parents, plus sexual exploration. Um, I'm curious, you know, in a larger sense, what was the development process like at Disney plus? And did anyone read these scripts to see some of these storylines? early on and say, I don't know if alcohol use and, you know, parents, you know, fidelity and things like that fit on Disney plus, which at the same time is also a platform that houses every Marvel movie under the sun at, which are all incredibly violent and features death and destruction.
5: So, yeah, we, I mean, look, we sold this straight to series to Disney plus, uh, I think it was six or seven months before they had even launched as a platform and the notion of what constitutes a Disney Plus original was very much a forming developing idea that changed by the day what I will say is that you know Disney Television Studios as a whole has been so supportive of the show and when it became clear that Disney Plus was going to skew slightly younger and not feature kids drinking not have parents who are having affairs just not telling that level of story they were so quick to 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 move the show and looking forward what we're so excited about being on Hulu is that we want to tell a show that kind of grows up with its audience. I remember for me, that was Boy Meets World, where you started with those kids when they were 13, 14 and, and stuck with them through college. And the stories matured along with the audience and the characters. And now that we're on Hulu, there's really no ceiling to the sort of sophistication and maturity uh, and and content that we can have on this show. So we're we're in the middle of writing season two right now. And it's just been so exciting to know that we're sort of able to to just be as honest as we want to be telling stories of what it's like to be a junior in high school.
2: But at the same time, this show, like, I, I you know, I, I binged the whole season. It, you know, I think we watched it over two nights, maybe. And the, a lot of the time I found myself saying, what is wrong with the show that Disney Plus rejected it? Because there's nothing that I see, especially when you're looking that at other four quadrant things that, that Disney Plus is doing, like all these Marvel shows and everything, like that you have what do you you have different demos watching different things on, on Disney plus I get it, but it's all as a service. It's got Disney in its name. It's designed for families. This is a family show. It's a younger skewing. It feels like it could be on Freeform. little. So the fact that Disney plus would reject it is, is very questionable to me.
1: Yeah, it was, you know, it was an interesting process for all of us. I think they're, There may have been sort of, as Isaac said, a disconnect between what they hoped to do and then what they realized they could do as they were sort of figuring out exactly who they were as a brand and as a network. Um... It was definitely I think an interesting process for all of us involved and we we're just we're grateful for the pivot because it happened right. at the right time and we're we're grateful that we weren't forced to make the show something that we couldn't sort of stand behind and believe in and didn't and and you know wouldn't feel authentic to the audience that we were really really hopeful we'd get to reach and now I think we we will. So for, for us it's a, at the end of the day, a big win. We, we can't speak to exactly what is happening behind closed doors over there as they figure themselves out, but we're, we're thrilled right. for the show and where it landed.
2: But at the same time, were there things that you guys were, were doing as you were plotting through the season and writing the scripts and even filming that, that Disney plus came back and said, "Can you scale this back where?" now in hindsight, you could have said, well, we could have leaned harder into that. Like how much would the show have been different in season one? were had you known at the start that you were going to be on? Hume? Sure.
5: The show, I mean, we were never setting out to make Euphoria. We love Euphoria. It's just not really what we do. Um, <laughs> but I
2: think that, yes. Well, that's premium cable. That's a little different. Right, you can do anything.
5: Uh, it's just the more penises, the better. Uh, but there, there were, I mean, certainly Disney Plus does have a a stricter BSNP than Hulu. And there were certainly moments, particularly with language, really, and and having teenagers talk a bit more, how I think teenagers really talk in the world. Where were we on Hulu from the beginning? The show would have would have been a bit edgier in its humor. But uh, but we're doing it now. So we're really excited about these new scripts we're writing that don't that don't have those limitations.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think. The heart and soul and tone of the show, I think, would not have been drastically different, even having gone, even if we hadn't gone through the process we went through. But yeah, like Isaac said, we we lost some jokes that hurt. Uh, we're really happy for the timing because I think, you know, as we move into season two, we have some really serious relationships that are forming between our characters. And, you know, they're at that time in life where you fall in love and you have sex potentially with the person. And you're in love with and and we just feel like we're we got to the right place for for the stories we need to
3: tell well, I think it's interesting because the way Isaac puts it, it it very much sounds like the network Disney plus was changing because it was still finding itself rather than the show was changing as it went along. Were there private conversations as you were having conversations with people at the network about scripts and whatever where you guys would say to each other? I, I really think they're going to move us at some point, or I really think we're going to need to move to tell the story that we wanted. W- would you have those whispering conversations?
1: Uh, we would. I mean, I think everyone, and I will say the people that originally developed the show, I believe really loved the original pitch of the show and loved the idea of the show being on the network. But as it became clearer that it was... A little bit of a struggle yeah of course we we were sometimes someone would tell a joke in the room and someone would go hulu (laughs) um so so we 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 thought it was a possibility um yeah we we really we really weren't sure but we knew that we wanted to tell a show we want we we personally only want we're interested in making a show for a certain age group so we really were not going to move too much away from that because it just wasn't interested in what we were doing. So we just sort of tried to focus on the show we always intended to make as much as possible. And
3: and you never got to the point where you were doing sort of like what movies do, where they have to have alts for the airplane edit or anything. You were never you were never at the point where you were like, okay, now let's do the Hulu edit where we say shit in this scene or something. Uh,
5: Actually, on Disney Plus, interestingly enough, you're allowed to say shit one time per episode. Um, Yeah, every I mean, <laughs> Every now and then, we would grab we would grab a slightly edgier joke that we hadn't cleared ahead of time, and and because we didn't know if we could use it. But we were never. I mean, it was never like let's do make two versions of the show. We just you don't have time when you're moving that quickly. Um, but I will say, I mean, from from like Dana down, there was never ever a conversation about like should we stop making this even when we were turning in scripts that they there were some trepidation about if they were too mature they believed in the show and the the mantra was sort of at the end of the day we're going to put this on one of our platforms even if we're not sure which one um so the the confidence was there and they were writing the checks to make sort of a, a big expensive studio show about a gay teenager of which there's very few so i do think they they deserve a lot of credit for that
2: that's fair. You know, and you mentioned that you're already writing season two. Um, it hasn't officially been renewed yet. I think uh, I would. Have, it Sounds like that's coming around the corner. But I wonder, you know, how does the fact that you are on Hulu now change your approach, knowing that you can use you can make it a little edgier. You can, as you said, grow up with with this audience. And, you know, this is again, Hulu is a platform with shows like like Pen15, which is very, you know, racy at times and, and very much. Uh, Ha, has you know the, the wink and a nod to a lot of stuff that you it feels like you may have been hogtied to to, to sure. a season one.
5: when we pitched out the second season to hulu their first question was when are the kids going to start having sex so <laughs> i think that
0: <laughs> speaks i mean i think
5: that's, well, my, that's night we, and day we were,
1: yeah we were doing the pitch and then we got to like a certain episode in the season which is like only you know a, a few episodes deep in the season and they were just like oh thank goodness <laughs> they were they were they were worried we were gonna stay too tame but but yeah, I mean, I think again, like tonally, the show, you know, we don't want to be much edgier than Love Simon. The movie at the end of the day, we still think that this should be a family show that families can enjoy together and talk about and sit down to watch together. We hope and that it in- we we like the idea that it inspires conversations that maybe wouldn 't otherwise be had, but yeah there I think there 's just a freedom to tell high school stories authentically that we didn 't necessarily feel we ne- had before
2: yeah and I think one of the things you know that we are wondering in this landscape is. As you look to tell authentic stories, you know, obviously we're at a moment in time in the middle of a global pandemic and civil unrest with calls for police reform. Will, will either of those topics? make it into season two and, and how it's being discussed among high school students?
5: It's interesting. It's an ongoing conversation. The one thing we've decided not to tackle is on Love Victor is coronavirus. We just we feel like the show has enough on its plate and there's something about the slight wish fulfillment, slight aspirational element to the show that like do people really want to watch these kids social distancing and Zoom Zoom high schooling and wearing masks all the time? But I mean, certainly we're in such a unique and specific time for our country and we have this wonderfully diverse diverse group of characters and it feels like there's a lot of opportunity for them to to be reflecting on and discussing this moment we're in so it's something we're constantly talking about with our writers well that almost goes back to the the boy
3: meets world comparison that you made where it's a show that started off skewing very young and then did to some degree tackle more serious topics as you look at what you established in the first season how much seriousness do you think this platform that you guys have is capable of sustaining
1: It's a really good question, and I think we're continuing to find it. We have, you know, La Victor has two leads on our show, two black teen characters um, played by tremendous actors who can take on a lot, and, you know, we have more conversations in the room this year than we even had season one as we move on to Hulu about, you know, what are those conversations that are about race within this group of friends? I think that is something that our show absolutely can bear, whether or not or to what extent we're tying it to current events, I think we're still finding those levels. Like Isaac said, it's an ongoing conversation. But we definitely think that this is a show in the same way that it can take on sexuality, that we can talk about race, hopefully, authentically, um, because I I like to think, and I do think, that those conversations are happening amongst intelligent 17-year-olds right now. And I think that our characters and our show can handle them for sure.
5: And we're really, this season, we're really going to be exploring in in much greater depth uh the family's faith and how that informs their reaction to to victor being gay uh we've been talking to to parents from p flag particularly people of faith and how what that struggle is like to sort of reconcile your religion with your love for an lgbtq child it's an incredibly complicated story um and it's one that i don't think i've seen told on television in the in the way we're planning to tell it
2: that's great you know you guys um are also the co-showrunners on This Is Us alongside Dan Fogelman, you know, for a broadcast show that, that usually you're up in, into production around 4th of July, what conversations are you guys having about when you're starting and how and, and, and how, are you incorporating COVID into that? Or, I mean... What is the conversation about how This Is Us gets back on track? Sure.
5: The conversations are constant, and they're often filled with long silences in terms of <laughs> when we can resume <laughs> production. I mean, we we have a big crew who works on the show who we love and want to get back to work very, very much and very, very soon. That said, we aren't going to do anything until it's safe. and. Uh, it's because it's such a big show, such a complicated show with so many moving pieces. Figuring out how to safely make it has definitely been a challenge. But we're I mean, we're writing every day. We're meeting in a Zoom room uh, and cranking out scripts that are ready to go. So it's really as soon as we get the sign off from people who are much smarter than than we are in terms of of safely making the show, we'll be back.
2: Are you anticipating a, a fall launch, September, October,
5: January? That also dep- I mean, that's an even bigger question because that ta- that takes into consideration NBC's other shows because they aren't going to just launch us without, you know, other programming. Right. Yeah. Um, but we're I mean, we're we have all kinds of tentative calendars that are that I don't want to give dates because it's so up in the air. But we're I mean, every day trying to figure out when we can safely get back in into production.
1: Yeah, I mean, the only thing that we feel we can control right now is the writing side of it. So we're just writing and breaking at the same pace that we always would be. And then we will leave it to the experts as to when people can act these things out.
3: (laughs) Well, Isaac said earlier that he didn't think that Love, Victor was a world in which you wanted to deal with COVID-19 and the coronavirus. This Is Us is obviously a much more grounded kind of real world show. And I I, I mentioned to several people that it seemed like a show that was actually reasonably well suited for a quarantine episode because characters are in different cities and stuff and they're always on the phone or always talking via computers and stuff. So how are you guys approaching or trying to tiptoe around approaching it because you don't know what the world's going to be when it actually premieres?
5: Yeah, that's what's been been really tricky because this is us as a show where like we jump around in time and we've shown certain things and we're tied to certain dates uh, and we're not we don't have a crystal ball and can't look at what the next few months are going to look like. So we're breaking stories, but we're breaking them in a way that are a little bit more modular than we usually would. So we're able to adapt when we see where we're in a month, if there is a second wave, you know, and that will determine how we handle it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little early for us to say exactly what our plan is there, but we have definitely been having those conversations um, in the writers' room about the kind of show we are and what we're suited to take on, and it's led to vigorous debates. Um, and and we're we're sort of in the process of of finding our our sweet spot in terms of exactly how much or how
3: little we're talking to the real world. What are the challenges of going back and forth between shows with? markedly different intended demos? Do you find yourself having to shift your brain back by 10 years to make sure you can <laughs> do young stories for one show, but then move forward, et cetera? Has it impacted the stories that you you tell with the teenage characters on This Is Us, Annie? Interesting. Elizabeth?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think we actually feel grateful that they are very different. I think it would be a little bit more of a slog if they felt like the same show tonally. Uh, there's something about, something really nice about spending some time in a really weighty emotional this is us scene and then getting to go break a fun, sexy Love Victor story. I think I think it really provides a nice balance. And yeah, actually, you know, some of the people, some of the students Isaac mentioned that we spoke to for Love Victor, we brought the knowledge that we learned from those meetings to breaking story for Randall's daughter, Tess on this is us. So there is absolutely crossover while still being a nice, uh, a nice amount of difference.
5: Especially with, you know, the character of Tess uh, Sterling and Sue's daughter on this is us. She's also coming, you know, struggling to, with her sexuality, so there's there's real overlap there in telling you know the stories of these two characters going through similar times of their lives. I also find it very
3: funny that apparently you can get away with one shit per episode on Disney Plus, and you can't, and you can't on NBC. So look, we could
5: do a whole podcast on on the intricacies of BS and P, and why violence yeah. is considered so much more acceptable than sex. That's like a two hour special right there. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I'm all for that conversation at some point, but
2: uh, yeah, I mean, seriously, can we just turn, do that as our next segment right now? Well, we do like to end every interview with the same thing. What are you guys watching and enjoying right now?
1: Oh, um, it's interesting. I, my husband and I, we've been catching up on better things, which is interesting because Pam Adlon is actually playing um, a part on our show right now. And I hadn't had the chance to catch up before when she shot our show this season and now I'm like oh my god how was she on set and I didn't have talked to her when I had the chance because I'm I'm just such a tremendous tremendous fan at this point so so we've kind of been binging that every night for the last couple of weeks.
5: Um, My girlfriend and I are watching season four of Insecure, which is fantastic and just makes you miss an L.A. where there was stuff to do every weekend. (laughs) And then we just finished this this short little Netflix show that we loved called um, Feel Good about this uh, stand-up comedian who's an addict that we just, like, I think we watched it in one night, actually. It's maybe six episodes, and it's just so terrific and personal, and we just devoured it.
3: Excellent. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us on the podcast. We really appreciate it. What with... All that's going on in the world.
1: (laughs) Uh, Thank you guys. Thank you so much for having us.
3: The full season of Love Victor debuts Wednesday, June 17th on Hulu. Number five.
2: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's major new launches are Love Victor on Hulu, F is for Family on Netflix, and Crossing Swords also on Hulu. Dan, it's kind of light.
3: It really is. This, uh, I'm a little concerned that we're going to be moving more and more in this direction as we head deeper into summer. I, I think we're in a, I don't want to say artificial doldrum, uh, but I think this is a doldrum post Emmy submission nomination deadline where if anyone had anything they really wanted to get out for consideration, they had it premiere before May 31st. So now they're in the okay. well, here's a couple dead weeks and then here's our summer stuff that we've got saved up. So, yeah, I watched two episodes of Crossing Swords on Hulu and didn't laugh a single time. So onward and upward. And I liked Robot Chicken a fair amount. Uh, Definitely not a show I've seen every episode of, but a show that always makes me chuckle when I watch. So that one is not particularly good. Um, I always like is for family on on Netflix. It's a really good animated comedy that has always been in the shadow of BoJack Horseman, of Big Mouth, of Tuca and Birdie, uh, of the more prestigious Netflix shows. And uh, for people who don't know, this could be season four. It's a animated family comedy about basically about Bill Burr's childhood uh, in the '70s, and it's just full of wonderfully tacky, kitschy period details. It's got a fantastic voice cast, including Bill Burr, uh, Sam Rockwell, one of my American Idol favorites, Haley Reinhardt, uh, voices a small boy. Uh, this new season is adding Jonathan Banks to the cast. It is a it is a great vocal cast and a show that I find very funny. It is a family comedy, but it is definitely not for the children. There's a there's a lot of swearing and other various contenty things. Uh, but yeah, I, I always recommend that show. And you you might have just heard our interview with the uh, <laughs> with the Love Victor people. And I think the simplest way to say that is, is uh, to say what the show is, is that it's a lot like the movie. And if you found the movie to be effective and to be funny and to be emotional and resonant with you the the TV show is very similar. It has a lot of very good people in small roles that I really enjoyed. Uh, and yeah, if you if you liked Love, Simon, you'll probably like Love, Victor on roughly the same level. So, yeah, I think that's this week's TV for me.
2: Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by the showrunners from HBO's Perry Mason.
3: Until then, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to see you on Twitter, so come talk to us. Let us know your thoughts, concerns, questions. But as you hear, we also like doing mailbag segments. So if you have specific questions for us, email us at TV's Top Five at THR.com. That's TV's Top Five, the number five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie.
2: Until next week, Dan. Happy birthday, my friend.
3: And happy anniversary to you.
2: Stay safe, everyone.